HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, the best-selling Irish single malt in the U.S. The Sexton is an unexpected modern malt for the everyman, rich in hue, approachable in taste, and memorable in character. Learn more at thesexton.com. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. On today's episode, cabaret may be a form of theatrical entertainment, but it's also a lifestyle for Daniel Isengart, who was born in Germany, raised in Paris, and he's the living embodiment of culinary art meets the arts. Because while pursuing a stage career, he also found himself catering to New York's socialite sect, feeding a class of downtown creatives, just like Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein did during the Parisian avant-garde movement. So, Daniel, we're, we're, we, we were just discussing so many different things right before we went on air, and thankfully, you've written a book. You've written many a books, an autobiography, a memoir about your life. Well, your partner wrote the autobiography. But you wrote this culinary memoir about your life, The Art of Gay Cooking, which it's such a breath of fresh air and such a breath of talent and creativity oh. as a cabaret performer, as, as a chef, but also as, as someone who studies uh, uh, life and interaction in a way that I hadn't seen before. And in, in reading this book, you realize that there is such pleasure in, in making people enjoy this moment and celebration and storytelling around food. Wow, that is so nice of you to say. Thank you so much for having me uh, here, first of all, Michael. It's a oh, pleasure. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, so um, I don't even know which question to answer first, <laughs> but but I'm, I'm very flattered that you uh, look at it that way. And yes, the book in the end is really about celebrating the moment, no matter what you do. 
When did, when did these moments start for you? I know you were born in Germany, you know, formative years in Paris, but when did you associate uh, food or entertaining as, as an aspirational thing for the rest of your life? It was always a big part of my life. I loved to hang out in the kitchen with my mother and my grandmothers and I always watched what they were doing and I wanted to get involved. Uh, I never intended to do it professionally, but I started to just do it on my own and I would have dinner parties as a young teenager. And I was already very opinionated about food. <laughs> and this was long before anything like food television, which I didn't even see until I came to America uh, in my early 20s. And my parents entertained a lot. So there were a lot of uh, dinner parties at home that in those days, in the 70s, would go into the wee hours of the morning. And uh, so in the morning when I would get up, I would uh, go to the living room and I would sample the leftovers because when you get to bed at 5 a.m., um, you don't clean up the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> well, you use this word entertain and not to parlay that into your cabaret life. What, what did entertaining mean for your parents during dinner parties? Well, I think they were very generous hosts. They had some very good friends. And my mother definitely uh, loved French culinary culture. So for her, it was also a way to explore that. And um, in terms of... And my family is a very musical family. So it was always connected. We would go to the theater. We would go to the opera. I would learn how to play the piano. I was in the boys' choir. I went to dance school. For me, I don't even make such a strong distinction. And I also say... For me, cooking is like performing, especially in the way I do it. I cook as uh, a private chef, so I ent help people entertain at home. So, yes, entertaining and cooking is very closely uh, linked together for me. But it's not dinner and a show in the sense that you aren't doing a performative meal in front of somebody. You're presenting yourself on a plate. Not really, although even my very first job as a professional chef was in the Hamptons, and it was a big open kitchen. And as you know, everybody always hangs out in the kitchen. And since I'm a performer, that didn't bother me at all. And I would engage with people and chat with them while I'm cooking. And I actually like doing that very much. But that also is something, you know, my mother is very um, expressive. And um, when I was with her in the kitchen, she would always talk and we would talk. And then she would do something wrong. And then it was my fault because I had <laughs> sidetracked her. Um, but I had also the grandmother on my father's side. She taught me um, that one important thing in the kitchen is to have a certain sense of ease. So I combined those two together. Yeah, well, we yeah. can't spell Isengard without ease, right? Well, it's well ease. phonetically. <laughs> exactly, but I always say, you know, my name is pronounced ease and guard. And in a way, that is what I'm all about. There's this tension between those two energies, and I like that idea very much. And, well, yeah. was there tension in your life? I know you were pursuing interior design before you moved to New York to pursue dance and a stage career. Um, was there inner tension of who you were and what you wanted to do? Absolutely. Um, I mean, as I said, I went to dance school, uh, but I really did it on the side because, uh, you know, I come from this German middle class background where music and the arts are very important, but it's not something that you pursue professionally. It's not something that gives you the solidity that is expected of you to build. So I shied away from jumping into that sort of bohemian world. It's quite complicated because I'm also gay, and I think that the reason I didn't pursue it academically, which I could have theoretically done, I could have gone to theater school or to going through an, an opera singer training program, but I always felt that that was too straight for me, and I only realized that very recently. And that is why I bypassed it, and I'm a very visual person, so I went into interior design, got extremely depressed, quit all that, said, no, I just have to do this. And I came to New York uh, as a dance student and started to build up a cabaret career. 
and had a pretty good run of it for 15 years. Um, but yeah, I had to, coming to New York to do this was the best thing I've done in my life. I had to let all these other things go. The visual preconception of what cabaret is, is what we've seen in movies. Um, is that correct? Is there some other life behind the scene of a cabaret you know, performer that well, I, we should know about? But it's not glamorous, for <laughs> sure. I mean, cabaret is the, in German you call it Kleinkunst, which is the small art, as opposed to the, the big art forms that would be opera and ballet. And cabaret is the Kleinkunst. You work in a very intimate field, and you try to achieve a big effect with small means. Now, that's a talent of its own that uh, one can learn to embrace. But, of course, no one moves into cabaret to say, I'm going to sing in tiny little places uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, we all bought into the idea that it's a springboard for a career that leads to something bigger. But it happens to very few people. Yeah, and, but you also leave yourself very exposed because at least the way you've done it as, as a single-man show, uh, performing at Joe's Pubs, Cafe Sabarsky, Dwayne Park, um, the, the transparency of who you are, you can't hide behind a, a chorus of other actors. Th that was never a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm also, I'm an interpreter, so I, and I performed a lot of material from my cultural background, French and German material that I translated, and the task for me is to make this quasi-exotic material accessible to American audiences, and I loved doing that. Um, and then I flipped it around towards the end of my run, so to speak, where I took quintessentially American material and filtered it through uh, the cabaret, the European cabaret aesthetic. So my last show was called The Importance of Being Elvis. And I did all Elvis Presley repertoire, but with my cabaret style and partially in German. It was fun. I had a great time. Well, talk to me about Weil and Brecht, because they seem to be one of the biggest influence in your cabaret life. Well, it's because their material is just very sophisticated. Um, it's uh, the, the lyrics. Brecht, I loved singing Brecht because his language is just so sharp. And I always say Brecht has to land like a slap in the face. It's not pretty. And Weil brings in the sophistication of classical music with the influence of American jazz, and he has his own style, and there's always this tension. And as I said earlier, I like to be in that place because that's where something interesting happens that you maybe cannot control, and that is not clearly defined, and it's definitely not banal, and there's a lot of banality in entertainment. And, and I always try to work against them, say, no, there's another level. There's an intellect. There's a political message. There's a history. There's a refinement. Uh, there's a gestural refinement. There's an aesthetic. That's why cabaret was fun for me. And also, I learned that, in a way, the intimacy of the cabaret actually suits my personality. And I do the same as a chef. I do small dinner parties. So maybe the big thing actually doesn't really suit me. Uh, and also, both of them are ephemeral art forms. Mm -hmm. You perform, it's live, it's happening right now, and it's all about being present together in the moment. And that's what food does too. So it's wonderful that I, I finally came to terms of looking at it that way, and it makes me appreciate what I do 
much more than I ever have. So I'm in a very good place right now. If it was so ephemeral, why choose to archive it in a book like this? Because you do talk about these very intimate dinner parties and situations and reference people that you interacted with who you know I don't know and the audience doesn't know. But there's some importance to it, uh, to, to tell an audience or to kind of recount those situations. Sure. Well, when you, when you look back on a pretty big body of work, I think it's quite normal that at some point you want to share it and uh, um, also for yourself to look back and say, what have I achieved, what I have done thus far in my life? And uh, there's also a very specific reason why I chose to write this book, because this book is a companion to the book that you mentioned earlier that was written by Philip Notre Dame, my partner and now husband. And he's a conceptual artist, and he decided to write a book about his artwork and how he created the Homeless Museum of Art. And since his technique is uh, linked to cultural uh, to appropriation technique, you know, contemporary art uh, practice of appropriation, he picked the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas by Gertrude Stein and filtered his and my story through it. And when that book, when he was finished, and when the book came out, I felt, oh, I think I, I think I would like to write a book as well. And it has to, of course, has to be a, a culinary memoir because that's such a big part of my life. And he said, well, obviously, then you should do what I have done and take the Alice B. Toklas cookbook, which is the companion piece to Gertrude Stein's uh, book, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, and give it the same treatment as I had. And I resisted that for a little while because I felt, well, I have something of my own to say until I realized, well, I can still say it, but I can do it in a stylized way and use this as a creative exercise. And it was extremely liberating to not just roll out these earnest messages, but to shape it to sound more like Alice B. Toklas. And I really did that very meticulously. Let's talk a little about more about Toklas herself because she she is of the ilk of James Beard and Richard Olney and you know Craig Claiborne who who were gay in a food community that accepted them but they weren't necessarily accepted outside of that um what was the importance of what Toklas and Gertrude Stein did and can can you tell me about some of the dishes they served at their dinner parties because they sound like wonderful places to be right well of course uh, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas had a salon in Paris and uh, Gertrude Stein was one of the first uh, uh, people who bought a Picasso and they were friends with Matisse and Picasso and all these artists before they became famous and they had a salon where the, the paintings would hang and people would come to take a look at them and they would be a big dinner um, of course everybody knew that Gertrude and Alice were an item, a couple, like a married couple but one didn't really talk about it, certainly not outside of the home about this. Uh, so this was not a time to be openly gay. Yeah, I think even on Wikipedia it still says wife in quotations, not even partner anymore, but it won't like fully define them but as a married even, couple. Well, because technically yeah, yeah. now that marriage exists, yeah. you know, you, that would be misunderstood as if they actually had married. But that is a step forward because there was a long, for a long time, people would insist that they actually were just friends and she was, the, Alice was the secretary and whatnot. Um, in terms of the food, they since they both had um, uh, basically uh, uh, were independently not wealthy, but there was money, so they had, didn't have to worry about finances. So they could afford up to the war to hire people to uh, uh, be in the kitchen. So they had a whole line of home cooks that they hired and that 
prepared the food, but Alice was always very involved because she loved cooking and she collected recipes. But the food they served was uh, very French, very rich, really a 19th century kind of cuisine. So if you l read the recipes by Alice Bitoklis, you really think, oh my God, it's like butter, 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 butter. But then you look at Gertrude Stein, who was a pretty hefty woman, and I always think of her as a woman who liked to sit and have steak. <laughs> um, and uh, so the food that they had, I mean, the, it's it's quite uh, extreme in a way um, because, yeah, they didn't hold back on anything. It was, uh, yeah, I don't want to say Dionysian because I think there was a certain discipline, but there was definitely a French celebratory way of uh, the table. Mm -hmm. I, I know you've created or written these parallel lives between Toklas and Stein and yourself and your partner, but are you a little sad and jealous that you never got to cook for them at their dinner parties? And if so, what would oh, you have cooked? I, I never thought of that. That's a lovely thought, though. Oh, wow. Um, what would I have cooked for them? Well, as I said, Gertrude Stein looks like she wants a big piece of beef, and so I would definitely have uh, done that. Um, I don't know. It's... it's <clears throat> The thing is, when I cook, I always try to read what people want, and I try to read the setting, but I make it my own. Um, I'm, I, you know, I always joke that I love to go to the restaurants that are run by lesbians because they make food that really speaks to me because it's so um, strong and has a strong vision, and it doesn't try to show off. I always joke that they know what it feels good inside, and it's not about making it look super pretty but it's just really good, sturdy quality without being pretentious. Um, and But I like that, but I would add that I try to make things maybe a little bit lighter, maybe have a little bit more vegetables, a little bit more greens. That would come a long, a long way in my book. Do, do you read people as a cabaret performer in the same way you read them as, as their private chef, as a caterer? Well, as a performer, you get a sense over the years that an audience is always like one animal. It reacts very much in unison to what's going on, unless you have a heckler, but that's been rare in my life, thank God. Or even though it could be fun, and I've thrown people out, actually, in my in my time as a cabaret performer. Um, now, of course, it's different when I cook, because there I don't meet the people until they come, and I cook all day. So I'm reacting to the setting, and I'm reacting to the host. And we talk about it, obviously. Uh, and it's very much related to the season and also what I can do because I always like to say I don't travel with knives I travel maybe with spices um, but I always make a point of visiting the kitchen I'm going to cook in and I work in that kitchen and I can so there are certain limits uh, my kitchen will re my food will reflect the kitchen I'm working in um, as it should as it should. I'm not trying to impose, you know, a hyper-modernist French-Vietnamese style to a, a country house in Connecticut. That wouldn't make any sense to me. The, the clients that you hold uh, is a very posh, uh, upper echelon sect of, of people that you cook for. Is that correct? Well, they're definitely wealthy. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, they yeah. couldn't afford a private <laughs> chef. Yes. So you, you cook in million-dollar brownstones, uptown penthouses, in the Hamptons. Um, how do you restrain yourself from ordering, you know, 88 beluga caviar and, and, you know, the best truffles? How do you make food that is simple and accessible um, and sates them in a way that feels expensive and rich? My, my aim is never that the food should feel expensive. My aim is that I want to cook from the heart with generosity and with love. 
And that is how I learned how to cook. I'm self-trained, but I, of course, learned from my family in a non-commercial setting. And I bring that into another home. So I, I had this interesting experience the other day where I cooked in a very fancy Upper East Side apartment, a big, very designed kitchen that obviously was hardly ever used. But the hostess was a bit nervous about inviting me into that field. She was not used to having a private chef. She usually would have a caterer, which is very different. The caterer comes with prepared food and just heats it up, and I'm there all day. I arrive with the ingredients, I cook all day, and then it's being served. So she had to um, give up that space that rightfully should be hers because she's the lady of the house. However, she has no authority in that space. So she had to give it up for me, and it took a little while, so I had to tame her. I had to show her that I'm not here to threaten your position. I'm actually here to make you look good. And I did that by being very relaxed, and she would run through the kitchen on and on all through the other day and say, oh, it's, uh, how are you doing? Is everything okay? In this slightly manic way. And I was very relaxed and said, yes, obviously, yeah, everything is great. Can I do something for you? Until I literally saw her let it go to the point that she was able to come into the kitchen and say, Daniel, it's so nice to have you here. <laughs> and that was a wonderful moment for me. I realized you let go and you have understood deep down what it is I'm doing and you can trust me. And for me, that, that moment I will always remember because it's honored what I'm doing and it's important to understand what you're doing yourself. And I'm only now coming to terms with it because I've done it now for 20 years. Also because I sort of quit performing and I was able to not feel like, well, I'm just cooking to make a living because I actually am going to be a big star in uh, whatnot, cabaret, Broadway, whatever. There is a great quote in the book, or I believe it was an article that it says, uh, a young man wearing an apron was regarded as being a mere step away from cross-dressing, um, in that you once dressed as a geisha serving food as Madame Butterfly, and <laughs> I, I believe it was, what, pickled quail eggs and rice vinegar. Um, that was part of an art project, yeah. obviously. So, so. But, but the, the character that you take on, does it feel like being given a stage, uh, you know, cooking in someone else's kitchen or does it feel like you found yourself comfortable in their home because you've made it your own? I, I completely make it my own and I'm completely myself and actually I would say that uh, on stage I was always completely myself as well. It's just a heightened version of it um, and I'm an interpreter and I you know, perform this material but I feel that maybe to a fault I've always been a naturalist feeling that, yeah, that's, that's enough. And maybe it isn't, but in the kitchen, that is absolutely my mantra. Now, what you just mentioned with Madame Butterfly, that was when we housed uh, the Homeless Museum of Art in our apartment, and Philip Notre Dame, my husband, and the director of this art project decided that I should be the director of development, Madame Butterfly, the one who doesn't kill herself, but the one who starts working for a contemporary art museum. <laughs> and I accepted that role with some trepidation, and it was a lot of fun because I would put on the worst geisha makeup you can imagine. I would have uh, a kimono, and I would welcome people who'd come into our apartment to guide them through the museum. And I would be completely myself again, because I felt, I don't know how to play a geisha, and I'm actually not interested, because I'm not a drag performer. But it actually made it even stronger, because it was as if I wasn't wearing it, but I don't even know what they were seeing. <laughs> it, was, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and maybe we can coax a little bit of cabaret you know, out of you after that break. <laughs> we, we shall see. Uh, 
You've been listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. I'm Souther Teague of Moria Margo and co-host of The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, a new and unexpected modern malt for the everyman. The whiskey is made from 100% Irish malted barley, triple distilled for smoothness in copper pot stills, and consciously aged for four years in Oloroso sherry butts. My favorite part about the Sexton is that sherry influence from those Oloroso sherry butts. They're the large sherry uh, barrels that have been used. And then the, uh, the whiskey gets aged in them for four years, giving them this sort of nutty, almost savory quality. Um, the copper pot still makes for an extremely smooth finish. Um, I like it in a highball or just neat. Uh, every time I have a sip, I, I want another one. So next time you're gathered with friends or posted up at your favorite bar, reach for The Sexton, the best-selling Irish single malt in North America. You can learn more at thesexton.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Before we get back to Daniel Isengart of The Art of Gay Cooking, our Summer Fun Drive is starting, well, June 19th through July 31st, and we're looking to raise $25,000 and invite listeners to become HRN members. If you've never done that before, go to HeritageRadioNetwork.org backslash donate, and you'll see a little beating heart. Uh, so many great member gifts. And during this fun drive, we're going to have a you know, a monthly recurring donation set up. So for $5, $10 a month, you can become a member and support 501c3 nonprofit, you know, listener-supported food radio, and we'd really appreciate that. But back to Daniel Isengart and the art of gay cooking. This is a culinary culinary memoir, but th- this title obviously is is striking and strong. What What does it mean to you? I think we probably need to break it down because the, the title makes two statements. First of all, that there is such a thing as gay cooking and then that there is an art to it. So I like to think that there may be a gay approach to cooking if, as it was the case in my life, you come from a different place than, say, someone who just decides when he's 19 or 17 to go to cooking school and just pursue that regular career of just starting to work in restaurants whereas I learned how to cook as a kid hanging out with my mother and grandmother because I wasn't going to go outside play soccer with the boys. So there's an element of the hearth and of cooking for loved ones that was always there for me. Um, and also maybe uh, you know a way to heighten a certain sense of refinement as part of your life. The art element is the attempt to elevate everything that you do to a higher level, to a higher state, by being conscious and by giving it everything you got. Um, of course, the title is a provocation. Um, it's also related to the fact that I have extensively written about this whole idea um, years ago in an article series called The Joy of Gay Cooking, a title I'm not allowed to use any longer because of the lovely people representing the uh, joy of cooking. Um, but that is now being reissued in August as another book called Queering the Kitchen. And that is the book where I break down why I think that gay men 
should have a say in the culinary world, and actually they have. And I think that they should be invited to the table to be part of this big conversation we're having right now in the culinary world, because maybe we have something specific to contribute. It's all about what we have to contribute. I don't like uh, the victim card. Uh, that is not my game at all. I mean, we've mentioned people like James Beard, Richard Only, Craig Claiborne, who used to write for The Times. Exactly. And all gay men. Yeah, and who I didn't know was Dean and DeLuca. Yes. Um, which is, you know, a, a, a staple, a fountainhead of very important you know, food in New York here. Yes. But Joel and Giorgio, um, yeah. that's something that, well, that, that, that it wasn't shocking to me. But again, like you said, bring light to it. But then you also mentioned something about how lesbians cook and, and why gay men and not gay people as a whole. Um, well, I think that traditionally the restaurant kitchen is really uh, an environment that is quite similar to the military. So I think that gay men, uh, there definitely have always been gay men in the field. I'm quite sure of that. But uh, we know that the restaurant kitchen is a rough environment and they were probably quite hushed about it. I think now is a time when these things change and that's a good thing. Uh, it's a very important thing that we just have uh, become more relaxed about it. Yeah, because so what? In, in the end, it really doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. But uh, you shouldn't feel that you have to be better because you're gay. You just, the question is, what do you have to contribute, just like everybody else? And maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe you have a different way of dealing with people. Maybe you're a little bit more communicative. Maybe you're a little bit more extroverted. Maybe you don't take things so seriously. It's very healthy to have in an environment where you have to collaborate all the time. In, in reading your book, there are 250-plus recipes, and... Um, you also defined how you know lesbians cook as far as in, in descriptive terms. Is there a way that gay men cook? Because if I read something like lentil stew and steamed basmati rice, is there a way that I do it differently than you? Yes. Well, we don't know, right? Because uh, we do have openly lesbian chefs in the culinary world right now. So that's why I was able to observe. Um, but actually, you know, I've had experiences where I've gone to restaurants without knowing anything about it tasted the food, and at some point asked the waiter, is that a woman in the kitchen? And I would say, yes. I knew it. And it would be a lesbian. And I've been to restaurants where I felt, huh, this is almost like what I would do. And again, a lesbian chef. So I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence. But we don't know what the food of gay men necessarily looks like because we don't have many openly gay chefs that we can you know, use as case studies. Uh, of course, the joke is, and, and Simon Doonan wrote about this beautifully in his book, uh, Gay Men Don't Get Fat, um, that what would be regarded as gay food, which means very elaborate, uh, decorated, complicated, finicky stuff, you know, prissy stuff, if you will, is actually made by straight men. Um, uh, hilarious, and he described it beautifully. And I think maybe there's also something to explore of the tension, why men in the kitchen are so rough, whereas they have to produce things that are highly refined. So maybe maybe they're so rough to actually counteract this thing that they're doing this quote-unquote sissy kind of stuff, working with food, which is, you know, uh, from the outside, maybe not the most masculine thing to do. Although, as you know, as have, knowing the restaurant world, actually it's very, very hard work. It was interesting seeing the titles of the chapter because they, they were less so about 
you being a gay cook and more about the pronoun or person that you were cooking for, uh, food in New York homes or even food in Germany before I came to New right. York. But it, it was about the food and the, the output rather than the person that that made it. But that is all because of Alice B. Toklas, mm -hmm. because I really wrote this book as an adaptation, which means that the titles are directly derived from the titles of her chapter. And with everything that she described in her book, I had to ask myself, what happened in my life that is close enough that I can filter it through it and make it my own? So when she talks about, uh, she has a chapter about food in the war. And I asked myself, well, where, where, I haven't lived through a war. Where in my life did I get a sense of being in a war zone? Well, in was the Hamptons. Because when I started to work in the Hamptons, it was my first job. And it, it was, I was broken in, as you say. And I had to stay, stand my ground because uh, I was alone and I had never done this before. And the demands were huge for a single person to cook in a home where sometimes you would have 25 people come over for lunch. How have Dinner for Socialites evolved? I know you have this quirky dessert for an allergic socialite in the book. That, that's a fun story. But of course, again, in Alice B. Toklas' version, that was about cooking for Picasso and how she had fun doing that and sneaking in something that would reference a painting by him. And uh, so in terms of you know, high-profile people that I've cooked for, I always like to say I don't actually cook for famous people for work. They come to my home. I have them in my home as guests and as friends. But, you know, the people I cook for are wealthy people, but I actually avoid cooking for superstars because I, I don't want to have to deal with that. Um, but the, the recipe for socialites, well, that was a fun story where I was actually assisting someone uh, who was probably bored with her job and needed some creative influx. Uh, and I came in to create some desserts. And the funny thing was that this, this lady of the house uh, had all these allergies. And she kept adding more things to that list of what she was now allergic to. And it turned out that every single thing I created that day was on that new list. Of course, my theory is that she had indigestion and that she was anorexic. But that's a whole different story. <laughs> uh, it is Evian steamed broccoli in that chapter, correct? Uh, Evian steamed broccoli, yeah. yes. Uh, I thought that could be such a wonderful name for your food-themed cabaret if you ever choose to Love come it. back into the field. But, but the quirk and comedy that is involved in your food, like you said, you're, you're not taking it so seriously that it, it's you know tweezery and nitpicky. Absolutely not. Um, where, where else do you find humor in recipes? Because there's also a lot of classic French cooking in this book. Because I grew up uh, with it. So I, there's a chapter about the French uh, food that I grew up with that my mother cooked when they had those dinner parties in Paris and later in Germany because my mother wanted to show off to her German friends and they were all very jealous because at the time you didn't have easily access to that uh, in the 80s. Uh, the Evian steamed broccoli, of course, is a joke because I always saw myself as someone that is hired to help people entertain and there are guests coming for dinner. So this is not the moment where you impose your personal diet on your guests. So if you feel that you should just have steamed vegetables, this is not the moment to have it when you actually have people coming over and you want to be generous and offer them a delicious full meal. So that was, of course, a joke that I threw into the face of one client who said, can you do spa food? And I said, well, actually, no, that's not why I'm here. And not, not that my food is rich and unhealthy. It is not at all. But this was just my way of telling him, I know what I'm doing. 
But your initial background was more in pastry, and that's why I see a lot of chocolate pudding, looser <laughs> chocolate. Um, there, there are a lot of sweeter-sided things. Sure, because I started as a kid, and as a kid you love sweet stuff, and in France... You know, that's a big part of the culture. And there's, there was nothing going on like we have today where you're being deprived of sugar, which makes kids nowadays even more hungry for it. There was just a normal part of life that you had in the afternoon. You had something sweet. And, um, and I'm lucky and I'm glad that I have it. Of course, now, you know, uh, uh, people, the kids, and I see kids all the time at work, they're not allowed to have sugar. And when they do, and then somehow they're acting up, then the sugar's being blamed for it. It's hysterical. I've never heard such a thing in my life. Do you, do you personally have a sweet tooth? Yes, I do. Yeah. So, so what are your go-to desserts for yourself? Oh, uh, you will laugh. I actually like very plain things, like a very good lemon pound cake or uh, an almond cake or a plum tart. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I saw a Linzer tart in your book, and well, that's, that's that's a big favorite. Yes. One of my no one here knows how to do it, right? I'm y- sorry. Yeah, there, there's one person who just recently passed, and I was so sad not to have uh, one of the last versions of you know the their real Linzer. Li- yeah, be, because it is. It's something like you said, so simple, um, but so hard to do well. No, it's not hard at all. But things get lost in translation, and American food and American baking is really about simplicity, and then. You know, everything here, you see a cookie that has some jam in it, and they call it the linser. That's not what a linser is. A linser is actually a cake. Yes, it has jam, but it's very specific. It has to have ground nuts and spices, but it's a very simple cake. It's, there's nothing complicated to it at all. But I wish people would do a little bit more research before stamping that name on whatever it is that comes out of their kitchen. So, I mean, it must be fascinating having, you know, a background in you know, German language and French language that your job's really about translating things. Yes, it is. And it, it was on stage as well as a cabaret performer. Um, what is it like to interpret, you know, French and German food for an American palate or, you know, reimagine American food with French and German pantries or tendencies? I'm, I'm loving it. Actually, that is the greatest fun I get. You, you said it exactly right. I'm, an, I'm a translator or an interpreter. That's how I see myself. Um, of course, it was here in America that I learned to take the freedom to do that. And I really owe that to uh, certainly New York City and to be exposed to foods from all over the world. So my repertoire is by no means limited to the French-German backgrounds that I, have from, that I had when I got here. Um, it's very important to put yourself into it and to think of yourself as an interpreter uh, because it's your food. And food is something very, very personal, very intimate, and it's also about the relationship you have with the people you cook for. They're going to put it in their body, what you create with your hands. Um, and so you have to honor that uh, trust they have in you. It's very important. But every chef knows that, of course. But I have a very close contact. I'm in their kitchen. I deal with them all the time. So, um, But interpreting food, it's fun to play. I don't go crazy. Um, I like to stay close to the classics when I declare that it is a classic. Um, but other than that, I'm free to do whatever I want. Well, I mean, what are some of the classics in your repertoire that you are your go-tos or some of your clients' See, I, I always like to say that I don't repeat. Uh, I do it slightly different every single time because for me, it's all about staying in the moment. And I may not get the right ingredient that day. And I have to cook that day. I'm on the market and I have a vague idea, a certain guideline of what I want to create that day. 
And then I see what's best, what looks fresh, and I get that. And I decide really in the last moment how to combine these things. Which vegetables go into the first course? Which ones into the main course? I don't know. But I have them, and I'm going to... That's actually the fun. That's when I feel like I'm playing. And that's why I still love it. And I will never let that go. Once I, I, that's why I'm, I'm lucky, because I have to do a very different meal every single time. And yes, if I have a request, I'm sure I can do something again that I've done for you a while ago, but it still will be slightly different because I, it was a different day. It was a different place, maybe a different time of the year. I don't like to recreate. I like to create. Is, is cabaret that same way in that you're seeing this ephemeral thing every time you see a performer? You have to be in the moment. You have to be in the moment. You have to express the moment, the present. You have to react to it. You have to be alert. That's when there's a synthesis between the audience and the performer. I know you recently performed at your book launch last week. Um, what did you perform? What, what, what was that stage presence like? Oh, it was a bit of a throwback to my cabaret days. I mean, uh, I sang three songs. I sang a French song to honor Lucien Zayon, who is the owner of The Invisible Dog, because he generously hosted the party. And that was also a song important to me because it's a French song written by Barbara, a French singer-songwriter called Göttingen, in honor of Göttingen, the university, old university town in Germany, that she played at in the early 60s, and she was maybe one of the first French singer-songwriters to perform in Germany after the war. And the song was a gesture that those two countries can be friends again. And I'm of the next generation because my parents moved to France, uh, and I grew up there as a German boy. So that for me, that song is very important because I embody the fact that there was a new friendship being created between those two countries. And I sang a fun song uh, called You Gotta Taste All the Fruit that was performed by Mae West in the queer cult movie Myra Breckenridge because, of course, it's really about sex. Uh, you gotta taste all the fruit. Well, you know, and Mae West, I mean, very mm. clearly that's what it was really about. And in the end, I closed with a married song from Cabaret in German, the German version that was written for Greta Keller, an Austrian cabaret performer who sang it in the film version of Cabaret by Bob Fosse. Um, because the book is really, The Art of Gay Cooking is a love story between me and Philip Notre Dame. And we did get married, so I wanted to mention that. I mean, of those three... And I interlaced it with stories, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of those three or anything else in your catalog of work, would you mind cabareting us out of this episode? Sure. So this is Göttingen by Barbara. Bien sûr, ce n'est pas la scène, ce n'est pas le bois de Vincennes, mais c'est bien joli tout de même, à Göttingen, à Göttingen. Pas de quai, pas de rengaine, qui se lamente et qui se traîne, mais l'amour y fleurit quand même, à Göttingen, à Göttingen. Clap, 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 clap. <laughs> I, I didn't want to ruin in the I didn't silence. Know how far you yeah, yeah. Me to but I mean, go. in that silence, you can just—it's so palpable. You, Thank you, you can you can feel it. And but one last question: what what would you serve while singing that? Oh, I think I would serve a wonderful, very fresh uh, salad, une uh, salade composée with some shaved fennel, a lot of lime, a little bit of chili, maybe uh, a nice little goat cheese. Good olive oil, radishes, color, texture, freshness, crispness, flavor, love. Yeah. 
all of that and more in The Art of Gay Cooking, Daniel Isengard's newest book. Check it out at Outpost19books. That's Outpost19.com. Thank you so much for being here. Thank on, you so and much congratulations for congratulations on the It's been a pleasure. Book. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Durkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. And don't forget about that summer fun drive starting June 19th going through July 31st. Help us raise that 25K we need to keep food radio on the air. A big thank you to The Sexton for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Tatashore Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.